So we're going to begin this morning by conducting a little bit of an experiment. How many of you would say, you know, I don't want to brag, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm a better driver than the average driver? Anybody, anybody want to, okay, like hands up all over the building. Okay, some of you are a little shy. I don't know, you're, it's all right, you're, you're humble. You're, also, you're good drivers and you're humble, I get, I get it. Uh, now here's what's interesting about that little experiment is that 93% of all drivers say that they're better than the average driver. So there's only 7% of us that are like, yeah, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm not good. Uh, other people are better. Uh, the rest of us, by my estimation, at least 43% of us are delusional, right? Because just statistically, we couldn't, you know, it's not possible for that many of us to be all above average. So uh, there's a lot of us in this room that maybe, maybe you're a little delusional. How many are better you would say that you're a better driver than your spouse gives you credit for. Like they act like you're just, you're just, you're going to kill people every time you get behind the wheel. You know, I, and it, it causes a little angst, right? Like you're a little bitter about it. I am, I know I am. Like I'm much safer. I haven't had that many crashes or wrecks or tickets. Uh, I'm much safer than, than it, you know, so, it, it, but it turns out that it's not just driving when it comes to this. Like I read recently that 90% of college students say that they're actually smarter than the average uh, college student, which is interesting, right? Nine out of 10 students like that, when you ask them that, that's crazy. That's a really kind of high amount, but it turns out that they're not maybe as out of touch as their professors are because 94% of professors said that they're better than the average professor. So uh, I'm not sure what your college experience was like, but I had some, um, let's say, interesting professors that maybe should have found a different line of work. Uh, now, here's the kicker for this little poll that was conducted is, is that they asked people at the end and 92% of those people that answered these questions in this way, the 92% of these same people said that they were less biased in, in evaluating themselves than the average person was. Like they, they, they were like, I'm more self-aware, like this, I'm, I'm, my, my description of me of being above average as a driver or above average as a professor or above average as a student it, it, I'm, I'm completely objective in making that assessment of myself. Not only am I better than almost everyone else in these categories, I know for sure that I'm better because I'm better at judging myself against other people than they are of judging themselves against me, uh, which is basically what they're saying. So, but here's the truth. Like we all have blind spots in the way that we see ourselves. We, we, can't, we can't help it. And it's true of you. It's true of me. It's true of all of us. And it, it's, true of, it's true of us when it comes to things like Achievement, talent, gifting. It's true of us when it comes to things like driving or when it comes to things that are attached to, you know, like excelling or getting ahead in life, when it comes to our profession, when it comes to what we're doing. Like, have you ever been around someone or been on a team with someone who was convinced that they were better than the rest of the team in terms of their talent, but everyone else kind of just saw them as average? Like, I mean, they're, they're good, they're all right. It's not like they're you know, they're, but they saw themselves as kind of the star of the team. Anybody, you point at them, just point at them right now. Just let them know that they're not as good. As, but but our, our blind spots, um, you know, aren't just in our talents or abilities, right? They extend to, to issues of character and personality as well. As well. Like I, I used to work with a lady and she was constantly complaining about how all the other people in the office caused all this drama, and she would even tell people like when she met them that she was super easygoing and that she, you know, she avoided the drama. But the truth is, is that 
she was the source of almost all the drama in her life and in the office. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever worked with somebody like that? And, and, and I don't know if you've ever had somebody in your life where they didn't know that they were the gossip or that they were like a little bit greedy or that they were flaky and then constantly had excuses or that they constantly talked about themselves and people were just like, dude, get over it. Like, just be quiet. I, have you ever been around someone who was, who was super talented on the other end, right? But they were also super flawed. Like they were a jerk or they had a temper or they were a little bit shady and not a great teammate and you just couldn't trust them, and, and, and they couldn't figure out why they couldn't last very long anywhere on any team or any job they were a part of. I mean, they were gifted, and they were talented, but nobody wanted to work with them. And one of the reasons that people often neglect or sort of misjudge who they are is because they're blinded by their talent or their gifting or their achievements, and they think that that, that that just kind of fills in the gaps for all these other things. And it, it's easy to do, right? Because in our culture, we often elevate confidence and competence and charisma over everything else, over character especially. And, and the attitude in our culture is kind of like, like <clears throat> people don't say this out loud, but we behave this way, right? It's like, I'm so charismatic, I don't really need I don't really need to focus on my character, right? I'm so unique. I'm so gifted. I'm so talented. It's okay that I lack integrity in this area. Again, we don't say those things out loud, right? We don't even say them to ourselves. But so oftentimes we've been around people who act that way or who actions kind of say that for them. I mean, because we've all heard stories of athletes and actors and politicians and leaders and unfortunately even pastors who were super gifted, but they got derailed because there was something going on with their character. Now, the other side of that is, unfortunately, we can also think of people who are total and complete jerks who have character issues, but somehow they're still really super successful. Like, they, they can just sort of push past all of that. And the reality is that we, we might like, you know, it is, we like to hear about those people. We watch movies about them. We may read stories about them or hear songs about those people. We don't want to be friends with those people. We don't want to work for those people. We don't want to carpool with those people. There was a a recent article that I read that noted that 20 years ago, when kids were asked what they wanted to be, the most common answers were a policeman or woman, a firefighter, an astronaut, or a lifeguard. Like those were the, those were the four most common answers. Today, the two most common answers are when, you ask, when kids are asked what they want to be, it's rich and famous or a YouTube star. YouTube star, that's, is that a thing? I mean, it is a thing, right? But like, it's not a thing that you're going to be. I'm just, I'm, I'm just telling you right now. Um, I mean, it, but isn't it interesting, though, that, that our highest aims, right, our highest aspirations, even from the time that we were kids, have somehow, somehow shifted from wanting to be what we perceive, especially when we're little, to be heroic and helpful to now just wanting to be kind of celebrated and coddled, right? To being famous and people, you know, people know my name and people watch my videos and people think I'm funny and people pay me just to be me. The problem is that if you're, you know, for those of us that have lived a little bit, it's like we've lived long enough to see what happens to people whose lives are kind of propped up by performance, but they lack integrity in their life. 
I, I remember if you grew up in church, you probably heard this verse. I, it was a verse I learned when I was a little kid because I grew up going to church. Uh, and I remember learning this verse as a kid. It was in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. It says this, it says, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. And I remember as a kid being terrified and thought that was just wrong, that God was threatening like, to, to, like anything that we did wrong, if it, was, if it was really bad, God was like, I'm just gonna out you. Everybody's gonna know. And so I, I, I was terrified that God was threatening to expose us and, and that everyone would find out about all the things I've ever done. But the truth of what he was saying is this, is like he was saying, you will eventually have to deal with the implications of your choices and actions. Like, like eventually you will have to face you. Eventually who you are and the choices you make and the way that you live and the way that you treat people, eventually it will come out. Eventually it will come to light. Eventually you will have to face it. And we've obviously watched that play out in very public ways for people who place talent and charisma over character and integrity. And, and that's kind of the last thing we want, right? For ourselves and our kids, right? It's for, it's for our lives to crash and burn because we placed what we can do above who we are. Nobody wants to watch their kids grow up and become shallow, hollow, sort of self-centered, self-absorbed people. Now, you would think in church, you know, like a, a conversation about families and a conversation, you know, in family month that there'd be a lot of great families in the scriptures that I could just be like, flip open to this story and let's read this great story about this great family. And the truth is, is there's just not a lot of great family stories in the scriptures. In fact, most of the families in the scriptures are way more messed up than your family and my family. Uh, and, and there's just not a, a lot of examples about what to do. In fact, we can't even really look at Jesus because Jesus's mom, I mean, she was a little bit controlling and kind of bossy even when he was an adult. I mean, you know, God bless her, Mary. You know, she was a great lady and gave birth to the son of God and all that stuff, but she was a little bit bossy when he was an adult and she lost her kid when he was 12, right? She left him in a city. I mean, that's not, not mom of the year material kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and Jesus himself, like we can't really, like we can look at what he did, but he was perfect and he could read minds. Like I, that's, it's, it's easy to be good at relationships when you always know what the other person's thinking and you always know everything they've ever, they've ever done wrong. I mean, so it's, it's, not, it's not always super easy to look at Jesus, but there is a story of a messed up family of a father and son that we can look at that's that's uh we can learn from that's in the old testament it kind of speaks directly in fact to this conversation that we're having about character integrity and all that stuff so it's found uh in the old testament in a book called second samuel and we're going to begin by reading a little bit out of chapter 14 and we're going to kind of skip around read a couple of different little chunks out of the story uh, of of uh King David and his son Absalom. So in 2 Samuel chapter 14, the scriptures will be uh, on the screens behind me. Beginning with verse 25, it says, Now in all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. See, if Absalom was alive today, he would be a YouTube star because nobody's in, in the whole nation of Israel, nobody, everybody was like, that dude is good looking. And so... Um, it's easy to hate him right from the beginning, right? From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish. He was perfect. Chiseled abs, just the cut. Like he could do that thing with his pecs where he like moves them. Like he could do all of that. Like he, whenever he cut the hair of his head, I don't know why this is impressive, but this is just impressive. Verse 26, whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it just became too heavy. I, that's, that's, he would weigh it 
So he would cut his hair once a year and he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Now that doesn't mean anything to you, but I looked it up and that is five pounds. So every single year he cut five pounds of hair off his, that, that's, that's a lot of hair. Like I don't, even his hair was awesome. So he was really good looking. He was really well liked. In fact, he would fit perfectly in today's world because he was just well known for being the king's son and being a pretty boy. Like he, would, he was perfect for today. And in fact, when you read stories like this and I read this, I'm like, man, the more things change, the more they stay the same because that's exactly how the world works today. So a, a couple of verses later, 2 Samuel 14, verse 28, it says, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing his king's face. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us, but the king, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon that someone would live in the city and not see the king's face unless you're the king's son, right? So right away, it's telling us there's some sort of dysfunction that's going on in this family because the king who loves his son, as we're gonna see as we read along, he, he, he would do anything for his son. He would do anything for Absalom, but two years goes by, they don't talk and they don't see each other. It's not like they were texting, you know, like there's, there's a rift in this relationship. Then verse 29 says, then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent, uh, sent for him a second time, but he refused to come. And then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. This guy's a real gem. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house. And when he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you. That was his excuse. Isn't that a great excuse? Like, I tried to get a hold of you. You wouldn't come meet with me. I tried again. I sent word for you. you so I burnt down your house. Like, I burnt down your field. I, I burned down all your food. And he's like, dude, like, he's basically like, I don't, this is kind of more your fault than my fault, Joab. I don't know what you want me to do. Like, what was I supposed to do? Not burn down your field? I was trying to get your attention. And isn't it true that, that tantrums and selfishness that's tolerable and even cute and entertaining in small doses when our kids are little, that it becomes ugly and destructive in larger doses when they're not so little, when they're older? Right, like, like, haven't we all done that with our kids? Because you just love your kids so much. So you, 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 you think your kids are cuter than any other kids? Like if we pulled, you know, that poll that we did at the beginning, you would be like, my kids are cuter than 95% of the other kids. I mean, there might be some other good looking kids out there. You might, you know, maybe. But so when your kids throw a fit or they do something crazy or they say something they shouldn't say or they're super rude, but they do it in that cute little voice, like, it's just like, oh, how can I discipline them for that? It was so cute, right? But as they get older, it's not so cute. Right? When they're 16 and they take the car and they do something else and they crash it and you're just like, oh, it's so cute. Isn't it cute? And nobody, everybody's like, no, it's not cute. See, we often latch on to patterns as children that end up chasing us into adulthood. So Absalom can't get his dad's attention. So he just starts burning stuff down. Isn't that like the human, like this is, so, this is such a human story, but the story goes on. The next chapter, beginning in verse 1, 2 Samuel 15, says in the course of time, so this is Absalom can't get what he wants, and so he's willing to hurt anybody he has to hurt, including his own family. In the course of time, Absalom provided for himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. I mean, that's good work if you can get it. Like, I don't know how I just get a chariot and just, hey, would you just run in front of my car just, just so I have an entourage? I need 50 guys. I'm looking for 50 good, fit men to run in front of my chariot. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road that led to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint, 
to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to them, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. He'd be, he, he would be like, I mean, you, you have a legitimate complaint. It's too bad the king doesn't care. It's basically what he's saying. Verse four, and Absalom would add, if only, I mean, if I were in charge here, you guys, I, I, would, I would help you. If only, if, if somebody would just appoint me as the judge in the land, then, then everyone who has a complaint or a case, I, I could just help so many people. If you guys would just let me be in charge. Verse five, also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out and take his hand. This guy's good, right? He's very slick. And he would take a hold of him and he would hug him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow that I've made to the Lord. So the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron and then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for David's counselor. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing and increasing and increasing. And so this dude is, this dude is shady. Like he's mad at his dad And so he's wanting to set himself up as king, right? He's talented, he's good looking, he's got crazy good hair, but he's entitled and he's super, super shady. And verse one says that he provides for himself a chariot and some horses and some men. And that doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me, but chariots and horses and men, those are things that only the king would have and they were provided for the king by the people. And Absalom isn't the king, his dad is the king, but he believes that he deserves what the king has, that he's entitled to what the king has. And so he uses his dad's position and his dad's money to provide for himself what was only allowed for the king. So not only is he good looking and rich, he's very persuasive. He knows how to win others over. Have you ever met somebody that was just so smooth that they could just, man, they just, just sweet talk everybody and win everybody over to their position? That was Absalom. He's got personality. He's got charisma. He wouldn't let people bow down before him. No, 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 no. You know, you just give me a hug. Let me kiss you. I mean, if only, I mean, you're, you have such a legitimate complaint. If, if only the king cared, but if somebody would just, I mean, I don't know, you guys, if somebody just gave me a chance, I, I think I could help. Now, here's what makes this story so powerful and tragic. It's not only because it's just a father and son, but, but this, is, this is King David. This is the greatest king in all of Israel's history. David was an exceptional warrior and military strategist. He was courageous and he was selfless. David was a musician and a poet. He was extremely talented. He was a man's man. People were drawn to him and all of that got passed on clearly to his son. But what David failed to pass on to his son was actually what defined him. Because as great as David was as a military strategist, as great as David was as a conqueror, as great as he was as a king, as great as he was as a father, as great, all those things as a poet and a musician and all the things, right? All the victories he ever had, those are not the things that defined him. God didn't choose 
David as Israel's king because of his fighting ability or because of his talent or his achievements. He, David is described as a man after God's own heart in the scriptures. In other words, he was full of character and that's why God chose him. He wasn't perfect by any stretch, but there was a character and a depth and integrity to David. But somehow that, that which defined him, that which he possessed, he was not able to pass that on to his son. When you read the life of David, he, you see that he gave his son all of the things that his father, Jesse, couldn't give him. He gave him everything he ever wanted, but it ended in destruction. Absalom had it all, but he was missing those things that mattered most. See, character doesn't happen on accident, right? It grows from what we intentionally plant into our kids' lives. See, if you, if you plant the seeds of integrity and love and patience and faith and self-control, you know what your kids are gonna reap in their lives? They're gonna reap, reap character. They're gonna reap the fruit of what the, the scriptures call in the New Testament, the fruit of the spirit, right, right? If you help them develop in their relationship with God, that's who they're going to become. Now, here's the good news. Just like we can develop a talent or an ability and we can learn and we can actually learn to develop and grow ourselves. In fact, we actually can internalize from other people what we don't currently possess ourselves. One of my closest friends in the whole world, his name is Donnie Burleson, and he was actually my youth pastor when I was, uh, when I was first came to church and first gave my heart to Christ. And, uh, and, and we have been, we've spent, you know, 40, 30 years, 33 years um, in relationship. And, and my parents got divorced when I was young and, and my mom remarried and there was you know, different, different family dynamics going on. Uh, but when I came to church and, and uh, met Donnie and he, we became really close and he just began to pour into my life. And so even after I, I got into adulthood, like the, there were things about Donnie, he was not perfect, but there were things about Donnie that I was like, that, that is, that's who I want to be. Because he just had this passion and this heart for God. He had this love, this sacrificial love for people that he would do anything for anybody. And so I just began to gravitate towards who he was and how he lived. And honestly, at this point, outside of my wife, there's not a single human being on planet earth who has influenced me more in my life than Donnie Burleson. In another Old Testament book that contains some of the history of David's family, it says this of David when it came to Absalom and one of his other brothers. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, it says, his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time. He never even asked him the question, why are you doing that? So as they're growing up, you know, that whole dynamics of, oh, it's so cute, and, you know, they're, they're, they're the king's kids, and they can get away with murder, and they can do whatever they want. And, and as, as, as things just kept getting crazier and crazier, David didn't know what to do, and, and he never, ever disciplined them. He would never even say, hey, man, what's wrong with you, you knucklehead? Why are you doing that? Like, he never even asked them, like, why are you acting like that? Why are you going about it that way? David's problem was that he turned a blind eye to the heart issues that were going on in his son's lives. I, I wonder if some of us don't find it difficult and end up doing the same things. There's a Dr. Tim Elmore, who's a, a, a parenting expert, has written several books, 
And he sat down with parents who admitted having trouble disciplining their kids. And he asked them, look, okay, so if, if you know things are about your parents, there are things about your parenting that aren't working, why do you keep doing what you're doing? Why do you keep doing those things? What prevents you from kind of addressing these issues that you're already aware of? And, and here's some of what they said. Here's some of the answers that were given. Uh, one of the answers was, we want to be liked. We, we want our kids to want to spend time with us. And, and it, it, we, the thought of them being mad or frustrated with us and them separating, we, we just can't handle it. So, so there's many times where we just don't have the backbone to enforce boundaries or say no. Somebody else said, we want to keep our kids close so that we can keep them safe. We're afraid of something's that something's gonna happen to them. And if we're always there, we can keep tabs on them and protect them. And of course, the downside of that is, right, is it also prevents them from actually discovering who they are and what they're capable of and what they're made of. Another family said, we feel pressure to stay young, right? We're, we're constantly marketed to in our culture and to think about, to act, to dress young. And, and so our kids, we kind of need them. We rely on them to help us sort of stay young and cool and help us to, to stay relatable, right? So we work hard at being their friends instead of being their parents. Another family, this is the one I can kind of relate to the most. And that's another set of parents said, we're, we're just too tired to fight them. Like, we're just too tired have you ever had that moment as a parent where you're just like, all right, fine, because I just can't fight you today. Because if I fight you today, I'm, one of us is gonna die. Right, holding the line can be exhausting in certain areas. Fighting your kids day in and day out, it wears on you. After a while, you just kind of give in because you're just tired, right? You don't wanna keep pushing the issue. Still other families said, we need them to need us. Our kids fill an emotional, they, they fill, actually fill our emotional tanks and we don't know who we are without our kids around. This actually happens to a lot of families. We don't like to admit it, but the kids kind of get put at the center of the family and the married, parents' marriage sort of take a back seat and you spend 18 years with the kids sort of at the center of the family and then you don't really know who you are when your kids are gone. They said, that's where our affirmation, that's where all of our attention goes. That's where it comes from. Now, none of these things are necessarily evil, right? They're, they're not like, it's not like these people are evil people for these, given these reasons, right? Because we all have our weak moments, but here's the deal. Dysfunction happens when we actually elevate our emotional wants over our kids' developmental needs. That's when things start getting really screwy in families. And that's, that's when the dysfunction happens between us and our kids. That's when like codependency starts happening. That's when our kids grow up and have all kinds of baggage, right? But here's, here's what you already know. Like all problems, issues of character, they don't go away if we just ignore them. They actually just get bigger, right? They, they, eventually you're gonna have to deal with it. So deal with them, course correct. Talk about what character is and what it looks like. Developmental experts actually talk about how there's four, four stages of parenting. Uh, there's the dis what they call the discipline years, which is when your kids are ages one to five. Then from five to 12, they call it the training years. And then from 12 to 18 is more coaching. And then once they're 18, it's more just a friendship at that point. Now here's the problem is there's a lot of times in our lives where we wait till they're 10, 12, 13, 14 years old to begin try to rein in behaviors. And by, well, by the experts, it's way too late for that. See, if you wait till, 
till they're 10, 12, 14 years old, it's game, it's game over at that point. There's no, you're just coaching. You're not training and disciplining. It's too late. So when you see character, when you see the right heart, call it out for them to be able to see it, right? So that, that you can point to them. Now, it's great to praise your kids when they do well, when they achieve, right? When they try hard, when they give great effort, when they're super cute and you, know, you can say, uh, give all that affirmation, but make sure you're including affirmation that actually has to do with their heart and their character, with who they are and who they're becoming. One of the most powerful moments in my life came when I was a high school senior. I was uh, sitting, uh, I got to go half, do, do seniors get to go half days now? I don't, I don't even know. Is, it, is that a thing? Anybody, any senior, anybody know anything about high school? They do? Okay, cool. So I got to go, I, that, that was like my biggest goal when I was a junior. I'm going to get to my senior year, so I only have to go to school half a day. So uh, I had, right before lunch, uh, I had um, a speech class that I had to take. And the lady who, who was teaching my speech class, she, I also had her for English when I was a sophomore, and she's a really difficult teacher and really demanding, and, but the, the speech class was mostly seniors, and there was only a handful of us in the classroom, and so she would just assign, assign the projects, assign the speeches, we would work on them in groups, and we, so as kind of just work at your own pace, and as long as you're ready on the day that you were scheduled to give a speech, you could give a speech, you could do that, you were good to go. And so she was sitting at her desk, and there were these little clusters of students all around, and I was sitting in the back with a, with a cluster of students, and uh, we were just kind of shooting the breeze, and, and I hated homework as a kid, and so I tried to work as hard as I could at school so that I never, ever had to take anything home, and it worked really well for me in high school. It did not work really well at college at all, but it worked really well in high school, and so I was working really hard, and they were all just sort of talking and laughing, and we started talking, and somebody started telling stories and jokes, and it kind of kind of went off in a direction it should have, and so they all started laughing, and I just like scooted my desk away from them, and um, my teacher Mrs. Miller was sitting, at her day, was sitting at her desk and she was writing and, and nobody thought she was even paying attention. And without missing a beat, she looked up and she said, Mr. Sherwood, I thought I was getting in trouble. I was ready to blame them. Like, I didn't tell that joke. They told that joke. She said, that is character and it will take you far in life. And that was the first time I'm getting, it doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but I, like I'm getting chills right now. It was the first time anybody had looked at me and said, that right there, grab onto that, lean into that, become that person. It was one of the most incredible, it didn't matter to anybody else. Everybody else, it was just, it went by in a blink. Nobody remembers that. That teacher, she got cancer about 10 years ago. I talked to her. She ended up going into remission, she's okay. But when she got cancer, I reached out to her and I told her that story. She didn't even remember, she didn't remember that story. But it, it's, it, was, it was a stake in the ground. See, when you see that in your kids, speak that out so they can see that, what it looks like to live their life and behave and choose to live with character. Show them what it's like to choose what is right over what feels right. Help them learn the difference between what is fun and what is fulfilling. Place relationships above experiences, attitude above achievement. Teach them that their talent will take them places that, their that only their character can actually keep them. 
Talent grabs attention, but character gains respect. Discipline and train them when they're young. Discipline and train yourself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Isn't that the truth? All discipline is unpleasant. But later on, everybody say later on. Later on, however, it produces a a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. No discipline is pleasant at the time. And that's true in parenting, right? It's true on both sides of the equations. It's not fun for the kids and it's not fun for the parents. Like that's the least fun part about being a parent. But he says later on, if you do it later on, it pays off. That means that the payoff isn't immediate. But enduring a temporary tension will help avoid permanent problems. By the way, the worst part of Absalom's story is how it ends. So he becomes all the things that he was on the path towards becoming. He tried overthrowing his father and taking over the kingdom and for a minute it looked like he was gonna be successful. And so he erected a monument to himself because nobody respected him enough to put up a a statue of him so he, he made a statue for himself. And in the end, he ended up dying. He was killed in a battle by one of David's men and no one mourned the scriptures say that no one mourned his death except for his dad and and that's how it always goes right a a lack of self-discipline is always going to lead us down a path towards self-destruction maybe not as extreme as absalom surely not that extreme where we we end up dying by someone's sword but it happens you've seen it you maybe even have experienced it now, I don't know about you, but I, I've had plenty of painful sort of self-destructive moments in my life because of a lack of self-discipline. And, and I wanna be the kind of dad that helps his kids and those that I love avoid more of that destruction than I've had to deal with in my life. Because the reality is we're not raising kids, we're raising adults. And what we do now is forming who they're gonna be later of course your kids need you they need your love but they also need your boundaries and here's one of the things that i'm learning when we're not held accountable especially when we're young we end up growing up not knowing how to hold ourselves accountable when as difficult and uncomfortable as tiring as it can be right to lean into those moments when our when we have to discipline or challenge or hold our kids accountable. If we don't do it, they will not know how to hold themselves accountable later on. See, this isn't about us becoming or us raising good little boys and girls who mind their manners. Because that's not what character is. Character is about life and impact and meaning and who you are at your core. And by the way, I don't know if you picked up on this while we were reading this, but religion is is pretty much useless in this conversation because Absalom was religious. He prayed. In fact, he said to his dad, dad, let me go to Hebron so I can fulfill a vow I've made, not to you, but to God. He made vows to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to God. See, all the church services and worshiping and prayer times and Bible reading, 
if we don't allow that, those experiences, if we don't allow God to transform us from the inside out, all of that stuff just becomes religious experiences that doesn't really impact the character of who our kids become at all. It just becomes ritual and routine. And the good news is that Jesus stepped out of heaven and he came to earth to love you and I, to step into relationships so we, we could be reconciled to our heavenly father. And the scriptures actually tell us that when we step into that relationship with Jesus, that God actually gives us his righteousness and his character that we can actually, no matter what, we, what gaps or voids we have in our life, that we can actually begin to lean into the person of Jesus and his character will start to be grafted to ours. That's really, really good news. That's really good news. Why don't we, why don't we pray together? God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for stories in the scriptures that are about real people, people's brokenness and mess, Lord, that we can sort of relate to and understand and learn from. God, thank you for not making it a book that's just about those who are perfect and always got it right. But God, for telling us stories that allow us to see hope that allow us to find ourselves. God, I, I pray, Lord, as we read a little bit about David and Absalom, and God, there's a lot of amazing parents in this room and people who love their kids and have done just an incredible job of shaping who they are. Lord, I, I pray for every one of us. God, we're all tempted. We're all, we all have moments of weakness, Lord, not only in our own lives because of just our own brokenness, but Lord, even as parents, God, while we're tired of the pressures of life sort of pull on us in one direction or another, and Lord, there's no perfect parents, but God, would you help us? God, would you give us wisdom as we continue to raise adults? God, may we raise people who make a difference in the world. May we raise people who are self-aware, God, who know who they are. God, may we raise people God, who, who have character and integrity, who love well, who are sacrificial and selfless. God, may we raise people who go out into the world and leave a mark on the world because of all the good and the heart that they live from. Jesus, Lord, I, I pray for every person who's here, God, for every person, no matter where they're at on their journey with you. God, those that have been in church, God, those that have experienced a, a lot of um, moments of relationship with you, God, those who have been following you by faith, God, that you would just renew that, that you would love them, that you would encourage them. And Lord, I pray, Lord, also for those of us, God, who maybe we've experienced a lot of church, but God, it hasn't been that real. There hasn't been that connection to the person in the life of Jesus. God, that in this moment, that you would, come rushing in, that we would open our hearts to you. And in this simple prayer, we just say, Jesus, I give you my life. And Lord, that we, you would meet us here this morning and bring life and hope. In your name we pray, amen.